This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense. Uh, this is Hill Vaden, and I'm here as always with Brian Darty. How are you? I'm great, Hill. How are you? I am doing well. Um, and, and today, so Energy Sense, as everyone knows, is the podcast, the IHS Market podcast that tries to cover topics that we find interesting that lie on the intersection of energy and, and finance. Um, and today we have a special guest, uh, Kurt Barrow. Uh, in our Houston office, who is vice president of oil markets, midstream, downstream, midstream and downstream insights. Did I get all of that right? Close enough, Bill. Close enough. All right. <laughs> well, welcome, Kurt. Glad to be here. Um, well, well, first, so Kurt and I used to, to, to share an office, uh, Brian. Uh, you shared many, an office? Oh. Many years ago, and it was most convenient to, to my house, and, and I was commuting by bike uh, for, for several years. So we used to see each other on a daily basis, and now we see much less of each other, particularly now that we're both in the confines of our own home. But now you get to see each other's personal space. Maybe (laughs) this is a more personal experience than even when you shared an office space. Yeah. You really get to understand the person now that you can see in the background what goes on in their house. Yes, their their books or their absence of wall hangings or whatever it happens (laughs) to be. (laughs) Or the closet or bathroom that it appears that they work from, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, so, so you know, I guess before we get into some of the topic, one of the things, so, so last week um, that there was a story in the Wall Street Journal and I was talking with one of our colleagues who's one of the more uh, extroverted colleagues w- with whom we work and he, he and I had met for a coffee and he said, Hill, I'm scratching the walls. He said, I, I've got to see people um, and I find myself driving at Starbucks, driving to Starbucks at four o'clock in the afternoon just to get coffee to when I have plenty of coffee at home, but I want to see another human and I'm not seeing enough people in the confines of my own home. And there was a story coincidentally in the journal about people making up new commute routines for themselves in this new world, whether it be spending an hour reading a book or listening to a podcast or even just driving around the block or walking around the block or, or either of you doing any of that or are you guys enjoying your absence of commute so it's funny that you bring it up because that is something that um i have to say i've been failing miserably at but it was a bit of my new year's resolution was that i needed to introduce some type of commute or or separation of my day because i miss it greatly and i find that it makes it very challenging for me to stay focused is not having that time that's either walking to work or I used to take the subway to work, obviously, and things like that. So I really miss it. So I've been trying to do it, which was the extent of my commute is that going out for a 45-minute walk prior to sitting down and starting the day or going out for a run, you know, depending on how I want to do it. And then also at the end of the day, trying to do something like that as well to give, you know, bookend my day a little bit. I, I haven't been successful at it. I've been successful a few days, but it's definitely not something I've been keeping up. But it's funny that you bring this up today because I found it 
that I was starting to scratch at the walls. And some days it felt like I have not seen anybody outside of my four walls. Well, some days that was the actual reality. And it, it is not good. It is not good for my mental health, my productivity, nothing. So it is something I, I actually need to devote more time to. And I, and I completely agree with whomever it was that wrote this in the Wall Street Journal that there should be everybody should be doing that at this point. I don't know. I don't know how people work from home for years. I don't get it. How about you, Kurt? I know we were sharing an office. There was a real office culture where every all of us came in, you know, basically every day. Right. Right. No, I was I'm looking forward, you know, to getting back in the office some of the time. I mean, I think, you know, like many of us and, and we did a survey you know, in our firm, right, as you guys know, asking colleagues, you know, once we get in the new normal long term, you know, what, what, how are you thinking about working at home versus going to the office? And I'd say the vast majority, it was, I want to be in the office two, three days a week, and I want to work from home two, th- two or three days a week. So they're seeing the advantages of working at home at the same time, you know, they are kind of climbing the walls, right? Um, and I, I was starting to go back in the office, you know, one day a week or so before the the, uh, the the numbers, the mm-hmm. uh, infection rates started to go so so much higher here again in Houston, right? So I've kind of stopped, paused that. But uh, yeah, I think, and it was interesting. I, I had a reason to get in the car and drive to Conroe uh, this, this weekend. For those, for those of you on the podcast, Conroe is about an hour plus north of Houston. And um, it was, you know, I just, I was in the car. I was like, this, this is kind of nice, right? I can, <laughs> I can uh, it, you know, it's, uh, I can reflect and think. It's kind of my quiet thinking time, right? Mm-hmm. Was, yeah. you know, when, I get, when I get in the car in the morning, right, I could actually think and, and uh, collect my thoughts. Right now, we don't really, unless we take the time like Brianne to actually jump on a bike and go ride in the morning, right? You tend to kind of roll out of bed, but, you know, make the coffee and jump in front of the computer, right? So, uh, which isn't necessarily healthy for any of us. Yeah, well, for me, subway it, time was my quiet time. It was, I, I, I don't, I definitely took it for granted at the time. Wow. Who knew you'd ever miss riding the New York subway? <laughs> <laughs> well, it put a hard stop on the afternoon for, for me as well, because traffic is so bad in Houston. I would plan my exit from our, you know, West Houston office based on traffic. And, and so I would stop taking calls at a certain point and I find myself a 4.30 call turns into a 5.30 call turns into a 6.30 call and then all of a sudden I'm late to dinner. Yeah, you're getting suckered in. This is it. It's very hard to to define your day if you don't have a commute <laughs> to yeah. force that definition. Yeah, that's it. No, I'm I, not anxious to go back. I, I I don't want to go back five days a week. Um, and so I do. I, th- I think we're, you know, that this. Here's the question: though. Would you rather go back five days a week or never go back? Like, if you had to choose the extreme, that either you're back five days a week or you don't ever go in. Which one? Oh gosh. Really tough uh, call. I don't know. <laughs> I would go in. I mean, I'd love the idea of being able to work from home one day a week, but if you told me it was a hard all in or all out, I'd, I'd be all in. I probably would. Yeah. I mean, I would probably err on the side of all in just on the idea that that's what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I've seen work. But maybe there is a new world that, you know, that this, that this world of remote activity becomes more normal and, and, and maybe is maybe the comfort that we start to enjoy kind of afterward. Yeah, it'll be, it'll definitely be interesting to see. Cause I think that's the big question now is what will be the appetite yeah. for. Well, the other thing, the other thing, you know, my team's been thinking a little bit about is, okay, we all work two or three days a week. You know, we need to now organize ourselves to where we're in the office the same two or three right. days a week. 
right? Yeah. Otherwise, you lose the benefit of the formal collaboration of meetings, but the informal collaboration of yeah. chatting by the water cooler. So it's it's a more complex. Um, oh, for added, sure. We've added more complexity to our lives there, I think. Which will probably, uh, I imagine, will be surprised by kind of what, what things like, you know, if, if the three of us are thinking this, others are thinking of it and trying to put new spaces to new uses. Well, I mean, I guess thinking, Kurt, so, so um, and, and some of your team and some of the research and, and looking at downstream, this new pattern post-COVID uh, or emerging pattern of people creating commutes for themselves, um, are we starting to see any of that um, in the, the, the downstream sector where, where there's an increasing demand or, or are we still or are we still where we were? Well, it's interesting, right? So we, you know, when the COVID first hit, right, we, we went in and dug out some, some data and did, you know, did some pretty deep work um, on where we're, where we commute, where we spend our time, where the miles traveled are, 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 are done at, right? And, and a lot of the work, a lot of it is in errands and, and work travel, right, uh, to the office and back. That's obviously, you know, gone down to a degree, but then like you say, when we do get in the car, we driving faster, which mm. burns, burns more fuel. Accidents are actually up, by the way. At least, really, yeah. You know, at least in Houston, there was an article that uh, you know we actually the fatalities are actually higher in 2020 than there were you know the year earlier. Uh, even though there's less people on the road, we're driving faster, which you know, causes greater accidents. But it really, from a refined product perspective, uh, what we saw was a real dichotomy between the different products and the and the end use, right? So things like NAFTA for petrochemicals was was affected the least, right? Because we mm-hmm. we continue to buy, you know, a lot of our plastics, polymers, petrochemicals, and you know, in some ways bought more of them as we bought more packaged foods and in, in smaller packages and so forth, right? Uh, versus uh, you know restaurants and cafeterias. Gasoline obviously was hit very hard early on in April. Uh, well, you know, in China back in back in January, February, and then the rest of the world kind of in the uh, in the second quarter, diesel was hit pretty hard. Diesel demands actually back up because we're shipping a lot more goods around, not just globally, but, you know, to your doorstep. Right. So all the delivery vans that uh, everybody sees going up and down the road were actually and, and it was kind of mm-hmm. a destocking, destocking, restocking, uh, you know, that happened over the holidays. So diesel demand actually, you know, back close to pre-pandemic levels. Jet fuel, of course, is the outlier on the downside, and it's probably still only about half half of its uh, pre-COVID uh, level. So I think it's pros and cons, right? So I think everybody, you know, there were some uh, analysts that thought, gee, this was a new world, and we were you know, all going to work from home, and our cars were just going to be parked, and so that's it's a more nuanced story than that. That uh, there's some of that, but then there's also some offsetting factors in some of these other areas going forward. So it's so on balance. You know, it probably has a reduced demand impact, but it's probably you know, on the order of you know one, two, three percent type level, right? Uh, yeah. The bigger the bigger impact really just been the lost demand. You know, we have demand ten years out from now. There's probably Three million barrels to five million barrels a day less than it than our last forecast, but most of that is just from the lost demand growth and over this time period. Due to the economic, the change of economic assumptions tied to yeah, that. yeah, just the economic assumptions and just the loss of demand growth for these for these two years here, right? So, do you think that there's an aspect of the industry, the value chain, any aspect where there has been a fundamental? a real fundamental change that can be pointed to 
in 2020 was now there's no going back? Well, so I think there is. It's it's if there is, it's we do think that 2020 is a a degree of a pivot. What we're calling a pivot point, and it's a. I mean, the oil market's a big big beast, right? It's a big ship, and it takes a long time to turn it. And if you look back over the last 30 years, the energy transition hasn't really happened, right? That you know, over the last 30 years, we have used our total energy supply, 80% of that, plus or minus a couple percent, uh, has been fossil fuel sourced, right? All energy sources have grown, but the portion of that energy that's fossil fuel has, has been remained fairly constant. However, you know, there's a number of major forces that we think are changing and, and it are starting to move the ship, if you will, right, towards a lower carbon energy transition, right? One of those is one of those most important ones in, you know, in your space is the financial community, right? Mm-hmm. That of money flows, the investment is largely viewed through more of an ESG lens, differing levels and differing, differing markets, right? Um, government policies, right, have been in place for some time, but they're getting more and more impactful. And we are seeing uh, the fruits of some of that. So one of the things that we think is probably about five years out on the horizon is what we call E-Day, uh, which is the, the day that electric vehicles, right, are, are break-even or economic without subsidies. Um, mm-hmm. PV solar and in the power sector and, and wind is already there, right? So these investments in the scale up of some of these lower carbon energy sources and, and induced applications are starting to to, to, to take hold, right? And then you've seen the company commitments, right? So the company and the broader social pressures on having a lower carbon footprint, whether you're Amazon or Nike or a brand owner, understanding the amount of emissions that are in your supply chains and putting real pressure back on those suppliers and those logistics and manufacturing base, right? All that kind of adds up in our mind, as well as renewed government emphasis, right? We're going to have another um, big climate meeting this year. We've got the U.S. that's going to be coming back into the Paris Accord. Uh, and, uh, and then, so, so we are, we do think, you know, and the, I guess the other element of this, right, is the pandemic kind of showed us what was possible, right? It, it, it was such a disruption uh, but it really showed us that, you know, demand can decline, right? Now, it's declined for some some very uh, uh, extraordinary reasons, and that's not the way we want to reduce carbon is by, by, shutting our economy, <laughs> by shutting our economies down, of course. Uh, but, but, but the clean air, you know, the clean air and some of the, the benefits that came from that, right, are, are resonating, you know, in some, some communities. And that, you know, that, uh, you know, just what we were able to do, the, the shifts, uh, and the pace of that change that we were able to do, uh, you know, from work from home and, and mm-hmm. so forth is, is raising, okay, what is possible and why can't we do this in the energy space? Well, you mentioned E-Day and, we, and we've talked about, you know, commuting a fraction of the time that, that normally we, we would. And the, the other thing that's been kind of surprising to me, if, I mean, if you look at new or used cars online these days, SUVs are rare as hen's teeth that, that you can't find them, uh, and whether it's, you know, the, the Forerunners or, you know, the Tahoes or things like that. So people seem to be saying, all right, well, I'm driving less. 
therefore I'm going to buy a gas guzzler because net net uh, I'm even. Is there a quiet comeback for the gas guzzler as people um, and, and therefore influencing downstream demand at the same time that energy views or, or energy uh, vehicles um, are growing so fast? No, absolutely, absolutely right. So those consumer trends are counter to some of the you know, some of the emissions targets, and it's a real dichotomy for the OEMs the automotive manufacturers as well, they're charged with compliance, right, on the CAFE standards, the fuel economy standards. And it, and and so that's part of why you're seeing, um, you know, hybrids and electric uh, vehicles being rolled out in that, in that space as well. Because uh, the other thing is the automotive manufacturers, that's where they make a lot of their money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they make a lot more money on an F1, F-150 Ford pickup trucks than they do on any of their sedans, right? So they're actually... What I always say is that energy companies, oil and gas companies, are are worried that EVs will take hold and that that will erode demand. The automotive manufacturers are concerned on the opposite side. Of that, right? <laughs> they're they're extremely concerned that they won't uh, be accepted by consumers and and won't really sell. Um, and then that creates you know that puts them out of compliance mm-hmm. on their on their uh, uh, compliance standards. So they really need them to work. I'd say. You know, not without getting it, without getting into details on the automotive fleet, right? That's that's why you see a lot of hybrids, a lot of plug-in hybrids, as being you know a transition model, right? That uh, kind of transitions the consumer from the ICE traditional car, ultimately to a battery car once the consumer's comfortable with that, and and we get enough charging stations and, and so forth, right? Well, I think what is also interesting about this is that we're talking about a trend that was underway prior to COVID, right? I, I think it was a piece that that you um, were part of last year, and you described it as sort of they take two paths at this point, the refiners. There's a defensive approach, and then there's the proactive approach. And I think when we sort of think of, you know, 12 months later, I think maybe it's been a less than a year since since that piece put out. But what are your thoughts around the likelihood of more proactive versus defensive approaches at this point? Is, has that maybe shifted? Or do we think that there's still going to be a, a pretty good split around which who chooses to be more defensive and those that choose to be more proactive? And also, sorry, maybe describe for the listeners <laughs> what the proactive versus defensive are. I, I just realized I just brought that out of the blue and didn't really give any context <laughs> to that. I, I deeply apologize. You didn't you didn't also read everything I was reading this morning. <laughs> Doesn't everybody read everything that, uh, yeah, that, that, that we write? <laughs> <laughs> it's so easy. There's so little stuff. So out. little, right? right. Like it's put up. Now, so, so the concept of, of offensive and defensive is one that you know, certain downstream players will take a more defensive stance in light of the energy transition, the regulatory trends, and really, really kind of hunker down, right? Uh, you know, optimize their operations, you know, control costs, look for uh, lowest cost advantage feedstocks, lock into downstream markets, and kind of block and tackling, double down on the block and tackling basics of the business, right? Versus offensive players that lean in more to some of the alternative energy, you know, advanced renewable diesel, advanced biofuels, maybe putting in some some green hydrogen manufacturing at their facility to, um, you know, and and you know, you're seeing the the bigger oil companies, some of the integrated oil companies move into power, 
uh, move into charging, uh, you know, investing in charging infrastructure on the retail site. And, and, and I'd say, to answer your question, I'd say both, I, I think what we're seeing is both the offensive, what we would label offensive and defensive players are both getting a little more offensive, if you will, during okay. the times, right? So I think the, some of these policy trends and consumer trends that, are, that we talked about earlier are becoming a little more evident to everybody in all markets, right? And a lot of this really depends on the strategy that you adopt is the market that you're in, right? So the strategies that the European majors are taking, right, are different than a Chinese major or a Middle East uh, national oil company or a U.S. Uh, you know, independent refiner, you know, in part because of the market that they're in, right? And can we assume that it's the European refinery complex that's being more offensive? I mean, that's certainly what we're seeing on the upstream side of things. Yeah, I think so. The It's really what we call the deep decarbonization market. So Europe is one. California, right, uh-huh. is, is, is one. And then China is really the third. It's operating a fair bit differently. But, you know, the Chinese are the, that market is going to move quite dramatically in part because of not just the, the regulations that are being put in place and to ultimately meet their 2060 net neutrality targets, but also the population trends, right? I mean, there's some huge population trends that are going to happen in China um, as that population tops out and then and it starts to decline here in the coming decades. So kind of that combined with, you know, the Chinese government and, and industrial base is looking to become uh, a, you know, a major player in, in batteries and clean tech broadly, you know, autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, and so forth, right? So I'd, I'd say those are the three markets to answer your question, Hill, where the kind of the first mover advantage is Europe and the U.S., or sorry, Europe and, and California also have the advantage of having some major subsidies for particularly HBO and renewable diesel. Um, and that's incentivizing the refiners and, and allowing them to get a return on a, on a low carbon uh, you know, step in, in their fuel mix. Is there a first mover advantage? I mean, that's we've talked with some of the other uh, some of our other colleagues about clean tech in general, and there appears to be because of the impact of scale on things like electric vehicles and batteries and solar that there's a huge first mover advantage for, for these guys getting into some of these uh, call it sexier forms of clean tech. Is there a similar first mover advantage to refineries, or am I better off to sit and wait and let others make mistakes and then come in once everybody's played the offensive for me? Yeah, it's a really good question, right? So um, I'd say what's going on right now, if you, if you look at the biofuel space, right, and, and the, most of the actions in the biofuel space are these, you know, advanced distillates, right, um, which are in Europe, they call them HBO, um, in, in the U.S., they call them renewable diesel, they are essentially relying on uh, one of the first mover advantages potentially is that they're getting the supply of feedstock, right? So these feedstocks are traditionally things like used cooking oil, animal fat, tallow. You can use soybean oil, but it's not as not quite as economic as, as some of those alternatives. But the advantage is that because those are waste products, they get credit for that in the carbon intensity calculation. So you can mm-hmm. you get a very low CI carbon intensity product out of it, renewable diesel. Um, it's a drop-in, what's called a drop-in fuel, which means you can blend it at the refinery. You can put it into your pipeline distribution network. You don't have to worry about 
some of the downstream issues that you do with ethanol, where you've got to blend that ethanol, you know, close to the retail site. Uh, so they're quite practical for the existing for the existing infrastructure. Um, that said, so we've seen a you know a, a, a number of these investments in California, all around Europe. Sometimes co-processing, where they're putting that hydro-treating facility in in an existing or beside an existing refinery. Other places where the owner of that asset have said, you know, I'm exiting refinery. I've got a weaker refinery here that's not as strategic. I'm going to shut it down, but then I'm going to convert it to a bio-processing plant. Um, and that allows them to keep the site operating. It, uh, it allows them to keep some labor, right, which is, you know, a little more uh, easier to swallow and stuff for, 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 for local authorities and everything. And uh, but but all that is at fairly small scale right now, right? So that's the other thing on the on, whenever you get into biofuel space and start talking about biofuels, you pretty quickly get to a scale question. Mm-hmm. You're entering entering those fuels into a you know 100 million barrel a day global oil market, right? Okay, how impactful can they be? I mean, our ag guys that we work with on the feedstock side tell us, you know, we can do more, right? We can we can raise energy crops. Uh, and we can scale this with the right regulatory system, the right accounting rules, and, and so that the, you know, the farmers see the benefit and so forth through that supply chain. So that's, you know, I'd say the ag refining integration, you know, to, you know, because that, that refining asset base, right, is a really good asset to do processing at, right? It's already connected in many of these assets set on the coast. Line right where you get you know easy access to logistics. They're hooked into the pipeline systems, right? And so doing things at the refining site like co-processing of, of uh, agricultural residuals, you know, again things like green hydrogen. I mean, the other thing with renewable diesel is it actually takes a lot of hydrogen, mm-hmm. right? So you can actually and and a traditional natural gas fired hydrogen plant just happens to have a very clean exhaust of CO2, concentrated CO2, right? So one of the things that's being explored is, you know, that's a nice stream to capture and and sequester, right? Um, and then the other, obviously, is you could put in some sort of green hydrogen, um, you know, and pump that in to the, use that as a hydrogen for the, the processing, right? And get further credit, right? You know, if the rules are written the right way to, to cap. And we've seen some of that, right? We've seen a few plants in Europe co-locate green hydrogen with, uh, you know, with uh, biofuels. So this idea of a second life for some of these more traditional oil and gas facilities is very real. Yeah, yeah, real, you know, real to a degree, right? I mean, you know, the the reality is, is the demand is going to, you know, most forecasts, ours, Mm -hmm. ours included, right, have oil demand plateauing, peaking, and declining out over the next couple decades. Kind of when that peak and how sharp that decline is, you know, depends on a lot of assumptions, right? But so we will need less refining, right? The reality is we will need less processing, right? Uh, to, but, but that's always been a feature of the market. We have always built refineries where we need them and shut refineries where we don't. So we will continue to do that. We'll build refineries in the Middle East and India. We'll shut refineries in Europe. Uh, I mean, the U.S. is has uh, kind of been blessed by the gas and oil supply we've got here. Um, the U.S. refining system is really uh, advantaged by the export of products, right? Mm-hmm. If, if, if we didn't have that export 
and we weren't as competitive because of our gas and oil supply, we would have had to shut more refineries here, right? So, uh, but you know, all that said, Brianne, it's, there are opportunities to kind of reinvigorate, reinvent, you know, what we call reinvent refining, right, into mm-hmm. uh, into some of these uh, lower carbon supply chains. And from a, you know, just when we think of well, our listenership in general. I mean, for us, that's that's a very interesting angle because it does present as an exit strategy, for instance, in an investment that it you know improves your exit strategy relative to to maybe what you would have thought otherwise. But what about the amount of investment that's required to do any of this second life type stuff? Are, are we talking huge retooling? How, from a financial standpoint, right, are these? Right. So, so we view the integration through three big uh, tracks, if you will, right? And there's probably more, but just three big ones. One, one of the simplest integration is reintegration with retail, to where you know, you're bringing the retail or bringing that refining output closer to the consumer. And, and, and this is what all retail consumer companies want, right? They, they want to have a pulse. They want to have social media. They want to have marketing. They want to have a tie, a connection to that consumer. And that's one thing our refining industry has really lost is we've, we've uh, you know, separated refining from marketing. We're seeing a little bit of that come back in. There's not a lot of cost in that. A lot of it's you know, just through uh, just, just through existing uh, relationships. But the second track of that reintegration is biofuels and agriculture. And I'd say that's kind of mid-tier investments. So a couple hundred million dollars to a billion dollars, depending on kind of the scale of, of the, you know what you're doing. So it's it's real money, but it's, you know, in the energy industry, it's, it's moderate, moderate investment levels. The big money or one of the big money, that's the third track that's actually uh, also perhaps a bit more scalable, at least with current tech, is petrochemicals. What we've seen, even with the plastic recycling and the concern around plastic waste and so forth, we continue to see growth in petrochemical demand. It's just it's a very efficient, effective from a carbon environmental footprint perspective, you know, you know setting, setting aside the waste issues that's being resolved, it's a product that will continue to grow in, in multiple different uh, applications. You oppose that to the refining, which, as we said, is going to peak and start to decline. So we're going to be running less crude or less ag feedstocks or whatever. We're going to be making less out of the refining system. So there's a, there's a real challenge there of making enough feedstocks for the petrochemical industry. Technologically, we can do it, but we haven't invested. Uh, so there's a there's a real push, particularly east of Suez. There's opportunities we think in the West, but a lot of the growth in the petchems are going to be in the East, so the Middle East and the Asian, where they're building or integrating, shifting their yields away from fuels to chemicals. Is that that's, a new build or? Well, it's both. It's both. So some of that's new build. But some of it's also, if you look at uh, what S-Oil, big plant that they put in, Korea, Reliance in India has a, has a big investment that they're a strategy effectively to, you know, to convert their refinery into, uh, in, in, into more of a petrochemical producer, right? And that's, now you're talking, you know, multiple, multiple billions of dollars to, you know, to do that at um, any kind of scale. Is there any opportunity, I mean, on the West, you know, if you think about, you know, some of the traditional kind of private equity models, I mean, do we expect to see new money come into old refineries to make them, quote unquote, greener? I think we will. Yeah, we've seen some of that, right? Um, and, and again, some of this is is the fact, going back to what I was saying about turning the, kind of turning the mm-hmm. ship here, right? We've not 
you know, we're starting, you know, Europe's demand, for example, has been going down and is being impacted. U.S., you know, is going down and being impacted. Most of those impacts today have been around just the cafe standards. But as these climate regulations become more forceful and become more, you know, impinge more on the, uh, on the asset, right? More of a carbon cost. Just to get, to put it in context, Hill, um, I mean, today, uh, the European refining industry gets about 75% of their carbon emissions in allowances. Mm-hmm. And so on average, they're having to buy about a quarter of their, of their allowances. Varies a lot company to company, but, but on average, right? But if you kind of work out the math that today's carbon prices, you know, it's maybe 10, 15 cents a barrel, right? Not a, not a huge cost. That will go to a dollar, dollar plus over time as, as those allowances shrink and the carbon prices go up. And then, and then it just creates that much more opportunity to green up, as you say, those refineries, you know, with different, different investment packs. So, so there are names we know in refining, Marathon, Chevron, Exxon, whoever else. Um, do, do we expect to, to see leadership in the future from the names we know? Or is there innovation happening may, maybe in areas that, that are, are less name brand that we expect to emerge as leaders in, in the downstream of, quote, you know, called the future? I think it'll be a little bit of both, right? So what we're seeing is, uh, you know, leadership and investments and you know, a lot of R&D work, right? A lot of R&D in their own shop, a lot of R&D through these technology uh, portfolios, right, where they're investing in different uh, startups and so forth to, to really uh, scale and understand, you know, some of the clean tech options that are out there. At the same time, we're seeing a lot of innovation from from smaller companies and startups in uh, maybe not so much exactly in the refining space because refining is a pretty mature technology, but definitely in you know in hydrogen manufacturing, in fuel cells, in uh, you know a lot of more the end use applications. Uh, we didn't haven't talked. We talked about electric vehicles in the light duty side, but cars are actually easy compared to trucks and planes and ships and trains, um, those are actually going to be harder to decarbonize. So we are seeing a lot of innovation, a lot of interest in, you know, both some low carbon intensity liquid fuels, right? So things like renewable diesel, but molecules put together in different ways to go into going to airplanes, uh, different options for ships. And there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of innovation around that space, I'd say, uh, but, you know, you've got some of the big names in there as well that are um, trying to make a move and advance the uh, the broader climate initiatives. Which I think maybe brings us to, uh, it's a nice little segue into what might be a good final question for this. And uh, I'm going to apologize before I ask it because I know everybody hates these questions, but I'm going to do it anyways. We're at the, we're at the start. We're, you know, we're pretty early on in this new year. So I'm going to put it out to you. What do you expect or want to see or think you will see over, let's say, the next 12 months, uh, that is a good signpost that you're watching for or something that you think is is going to be a necessary signpost to see over the next 12 months related to the midstream sector, refining specifically, something along those lines that, that you have on your radar? So I think uh, there's a couple of things I think we're keeping an eye on, right, in that space. One is is portfolio reallocation, right? So we've shut probably 2 million barrels a day of assets, and that's probably half of what we need. And what what do the owners of those assets do with them, right? Or do we see more 
bioconversions? Do we see more green hydrogen manufacturing hubs? That sort of thing. EV sales, right? I mean, we all talk about EVs in the long term and, and make projections that here's what it's going to be in 2030, 2040. But what's it going to be at the end of the year? There are a, there is a huge number of new models rolling out from, from the different automotive manufacturers. Not, not all those by the end of the year, but there's going to be some, some, you know, what will be the sales of the new Ford Mustang, right? Some of those new bets that the OEMs are placing and how are consumers thinking about those and what appetite do they have for those Tesla sales, right? You know, what are their, mm-hmm. do they continue to sell and penetrate deeper into, uh, you know, into that consumer segment beyond kind of the, the early adopters, if you will. And then just technology, right? Just all these, we talk about startups and stuff, right? Um, there's still uh, a lot of opportunities for self-driving autonomous vehicles that maybe aren't related directly to energy transition, but it's part of that mobility technology shift. In the East, one of the interesting things that also gets uh, overlooked that we're looking at closely is uh, two-wheeler uh, motorcycle, mm-hmm. electric two-wheeler mm-hmm. sales, right? Because that's where a lot of the new buyers are at. They're easy to recharge, um, and uh, and, uh, and that's the first buyer, uh, oftentimes the first vehicle that new new, new, new consumers buy. Well, that's, well, those are actually really good things to watch because they're things that we can very easily keep our eye on. And I, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. Half the reason for asking that question is to make sure that we can have you back. In order. <laughs> Happy to. Because Happy you're, you're, you're going to have to respond, actually, whether or not you're correct, right? So so that's that's the trick of that last question, is it? it's me leaving an item in your house to make sure that I can come back and talk to you again. Uh, and (laughs) that's really what we try to do on this podcast is is leave those little bites for next time uh so yeah thank you no those are i think those are really valuable points i I think especially what you talked about before the reallocation uh, you know we're seeing that that's going to be an important theme that we see across several aspects of the energy space so definitely something for ourselves and for the clients to stay on top of and so thank you kurt for, for joining us on, on this edition of Energy Sense. Uh, it, it goes without saying that you will be back, uh, even if we have to convince you to do so to, at a later point in time. So we really appreciate it. And until um, next time, Energy Sense listeners, thank you. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.